This podcast represents the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, and the guests. It should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Uh, do you have a favorite band or artist or, or huh. like group or anything that 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 you like? I don't know. I I love music, so I'm not discriminatory against any bands. I, I think if it sounds good, I'll I'll like it. <laughs> but um, I don't know. But I, I guess I, I guess what I'm band. asking: Do you have anybody that like if they came to to Miami or Fort Lauderdale or or Palm Beach to that theater in Palm Beach, you'd oh, be yeah. like, oh yeah, I got to go see them. I I think I'm a soccer for Mark Anthony. Um, his shows are amazing. Okay. So for me, it's it's garbage and not and not trash. <laughs> like there's a band called Gar. There's literally a band called okay. Garbage, right? Okay. And then the <laughs> second one for me would be like Guns N' Roses. I don't know. And I know everybody's super shocked that that's what it would be for like someone like me. But it's a good one. W- what would you be willing to pay for Mark Anthony if they came to say? The, uh, I think financial theater in Palm Beach, or say Hard Rock Live, or you know American Airlines Arena. I still call it American Airlines. Yeah. the one in Miami. It's Miami Dade now, right? Or the Panthers Stadium. What would you be willing to pay to get well, in the building? I, I've I've been to his concert before, but I think that I'll I'll make an edit to a question. I guess I'll answer the question if it was his last tour, if he was his retiring tour. I, I think I can be trapped into a thousand bucks, man. What? I mean, it's a last show. I don't know. I mean, hopefully I have that money, but. Oh my God. A thousand I, I bucks. But, but again, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to contradict myself. These guys, I mean, these guys all just, they get you into believing that it's the last show. I remember maybe four years ago, I went to Elton John's retiring tour. Right. <laughs> Elton John is still retiring to this day. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So because about it. the reason I asked is because both Garbage and Guns N' Roses are coming to South Florida. Garbage is playing, I think, in Palm Beach. And I got tickets to that. 11 so, rows back for 160 or so dollars each per ticket. Guns N' Roses in September is coming to play Hard Rock Live. The tickets just to get in the door all the way in the back of that theater. The Hard Rock Live's a small theater, granted, for especially for Guns N' Roses, is $450 just to get in the door. You want to sit closer to them, like 11 rows back for the tickets that I got to Garbage, $1,100. And oh, yeah. when I saw that, and I'm a Guns N' Roses fan, I went to see them when they were playing Marlin Stadium four years ago or something like that. It might have been the greatest concert I ever saw. $1,100? to me is a gross abuse of of your fan base and and it's almost sold out which means that there are people there that are going to pay for that but i'm shocked to hear that you'll pay a thousand dollars shocked well people paid a thousand dollars for guns and roses and i mean it go, I, I don't know man like if it's if you like something i think if you really if you have intel that the guy's not gonna play anymore and it's probably the last ever 
I think you can be persuaded into paying it. I don't know. I mean, the Marlins Park knows? was their last ever. It was uh, it was called something like uh, "Not in This Lifetime" or something like that, some some thing like that. A thousand dollars. I love Guns N' Roses, but a thousand bucks, like, come on. And, and it's not like you know I can't do that. It's just I just find it to be, and and it's like they're doing some kind of thing where it's like, oh, it's a VIP thing where you get a bunch of merch. And you get access to like a special bar, even that, a thousand bucks. Yeah, but yeah, Seriously? let me let me let me make it a little bit more specific. I wouldn't pay a thousand bucks and, and be up there and don't have any comf- you know, comfort level or seating. I think if I would pay a thousand bucks, that that the seating I would get should reflect that it's worth it. I'm not gonna pay a thousand bucks and and be annoyed by people standing in front of me or have to walk around to get food. You know, the money's already a lot. So I should probably try to get my money's worth, you know. So I think all in all, it should be an experience that I would look back and say it was worth it. And I guess, you know, yeah. at the end, if you spend it and you're happy with it, you, 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 you'll you sleep well, right? But if you spend it and you're super upset, you might you might feel like you, you've been robbed. A thousand bucks, it's like I'm, no backstage passes, no meeting the band, like... Nah, I mean, I, I went in I, there I, the moment they went on sale, and I'm like, I'm gonna get these things. And I saw the price, and it was like, I mean, a furnace hit me in the face. Like, there's no way I can't, I can't believe it. And and they were mostly sold out. So apparently, I'm in the minority here. Apparently. So let's flip it. How much would pay to see Tiger play his last, you know, tournament? You'd be on the, golf, you know, I'm not a golf guy. What's your favorite player, whatever sport it is? Who's your favorite guy? Well, I mean, I spent upwards of over $1,000 to go see Dan Marino get inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's not even a game. You see, your, your money your, your money will get you what you really long for and what you may think that is going to be the last chance ever of you getting but, to see that person up close. That was, that was the last chance ever. You know, because that literally was, you know, him getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. Right. And that chip was an absolute disaster because I went up there. I didn't realize that it was going to be so hot. So we sat around like the lawn all day. We got sunburned. So we couldn't even sit in the stadium to watch all of the other inductees because we were getting sunburned. Didn't bring any sunscreen. By the time Marino got there, we were beet red. Sat through his while getting even further sunburned. So it was super uncomfortable. Then there was the game at night. There was the Dolphins and the Bears. Sat through that very uncomfortable. It was actually Ricky Williams. I believe it was Ricky Williams and Nick Saban's first game. Or Nick Saban's first game for the Dolphins. I believe that was the game. First preseason game. And on the way home, driving back to North Carolina, because I was still a resident, we got into an enormous car accident on I-40. So the whole trip was a complete disaster, other than the fact that we got to watch Dan Marino retire. And that trip was over $1,000, well over so $1,000. are you saying, looking back now, do you think your $1,000 was well spent? Because I, I, that's why I said, if the condition inside the, the venue makes you you know, feel upset, forget about the performance or whatever it is, do you think that money was well spent? <laughs> you don't have to answer. I would, I, w- I would do it again. There you go. I would do it again. There you go. Yeah. I get, so it was worth it. Besides yeah, all, I just, I just, I just wanted to complain that Guns N' Roses is charging a thousand dollars to to sit 
in like and by the by the sound of it you might end up paying it i'm not paying it no i'm not i'm not paying it i'm not paying four hundred dollars to sit in the back of i'm not because if i'm gonna pay for a decent concert i want to sit up close which is what i did with garbage i got which you. is my yeah. favorite band and we just bought tickets to live which is another 90s rock band, which again, I'm showing my age. They're coming to the Parker Playhouse. It's a really tiny, a really tiny, like little theater. And oh, that's nice. those tickets, those are like 10 rows back also. Those were less than garbage. And it's like, you know, I, I get it. Guns N' Roses is bigger than both of those bands, but still, I mean, come on. Like 500 bucks. Probably, probably for those for the for the tickets that are a thousand five hundred bucks, there would have been a significant conversation about yeah, let's let's look into this. A thousand is just it's. I said to my wife that I think it's a gross abuse of your fan base, Be, and and the reason is because you know you can get it. That's why because you know that they'll pay for it, and so you could basically just throw any number out, just make it two thousand, and they'll pay it. And that's why it's to me it's just you're you're abusing your fan base. You're not getting them backstage passes. You're not getting them. You're giving them like merch. You're giving them like a T-shirt or like I don't. I, I have to look it up or something. What what you're giving them? Right. But it's not to me. You, you're gonna have to give them something. And I don't think. Yeah. And they're gonna fill anyway. the seats. Oh, absolutely! It's gonna be sold out. It wasn't. I checked it this morning. It wasn't a hundred percent sold out, but it was like ninety nine. By the time by the time September rolls around, it's going to be gone, completely gone, and that's why, you know, just make it two thousand. You know, make it three. You know, you're going to sell you know, it out. You know what? I have an idea. It's two of us. We need somebody to, you know, at least be in the middle. So when we get our guest later, we'll ask her the same question. Absolutely, ben, that's right. We're and what, ask her. what would she? What would she pay for it? Yeah, we'll that's ask right. Her. Absolutely. Okay. Excellent. I wanted to talk about today was. One of the things I'm a Panthers fan. I don't know if you watch hockey at all, but Spencer Knight, yeah. who is one of the up and coming hockey goalies in the NHL, he was supposed to be the premier hockey goalie for the Panthers, but he's never really made his mark with the Panthers. He's still supposed to, but last week he entered the NHLPA assistance program and. We don't really know what that means other than he went in for a health issue and it could be any kind of health issue. Usually it's not a physical health issue because if that were the case, he would have been seeing the regular team doctors and had that kind of squared away. And it's a different term for that. It's usually, they call it an upper body or lower body injury in hockey. They don't actually give you specific body parts. This is specifically called the NHL slash NHLPA assistance program, player assistance program. And that indicates that it's potentially some type of mental health issue. And we have no idea what that is. Your first thought, because of histories of athletes and things like that, is some type of substance abuse issue. But that is complete and 100% speculation. We have no idea what it is. But over the last 10 years... Because mental health is a bigger deal now in athletics, that could be something else. And it may be something related to trauma, depression, anxiety. So I thought this might be a good opportunity to discuss 
athletes, depression, anxiety. Again, we have no idea what he went in for. And there's multiple, multiple athletes that go into this program, not just in hockey, but in the NBA, NHL, um, uh, NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball. So depression rates in athletes, youth sports actually are lower than the general population. It seems that exercise and athletics is somehow protective. This is based on a 2019 study. However, individual sports somehow have a higher rate than team sport. Uh, specifically, and this was, this was interesting to me because in college, I was a track and field athlete. Uh, track and field has the highest rate of individual sports depression rates, which was super interesting to me. And uh, they speculate that it has to do with isolation, track and field athletes. And individual athletes in general, they tend to be isolated. They tend to blame themselves for their failures, a principle called attribution, because there's no one else on their team. They may have a team necessarily because, you know, I had a team, but the individual event, and it was me versus all the other athletes from the other schools, and I won or lost. The team didn't win or lose. And so these individual sports, people in those sports, the athletes in those sports tend to internalize that and tend to feel like it's their own failure rather than in team sports. They tend to feel like they have more of a social, uh, a social blanket where they have more support. But there is a principle called perfectionism where they tend to strive for flawlessness and uh, exceedingly high standards where they compare themselves to the other people on their team that guy did better than I did, that can lead to depression for them. And so I thought maybe we could talk about how depression affects people that are non-athletes and what depression is and differentiating that from just kind of general sadness and the criteria. So you want to go into that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good um, opportunity. But I, I think I've, I was looking into it, you know, what you mentioned that um, individual athletes and, and team players might have different rates of depression. And there might be a lot of speculation. Why is that? Um, but I did come across an article, right? It was uh, um, written by, I think it was somewhere in, in, in I don't know, in, in Europe or England. I had to find out. But what they said in the article, it was uh, the person was called Plola, right? So what, what the, they found, was that it could be that individual athletes may be originally driven by attaining goals or achievements, right? That That's their primary reason to be in sports. They have a, a goal and they want to get it at all costs. And what may happen is that that could be the basis for experiencing anxiety or depression when they don't get to that goal. They don't, they don't perform or they underperform according to their own standards, right? Or their team standards, for say, or their the sport. If they, you know, there's a, in sports that inherently there's got to be a ranking. You always compare yourself to others and you always have goals and things you want to reach out, record, if you will. Whereas in team sports, right, it may be that athletes that are involved in team sport, they might be originally pursuing maybe at an early age, the fun, the camaraderie, being in a, in a locker room, creating a relationship, feeling like you belong to, to a, a certain idea, a certain goal that all the team players share together. So like you mentioned earlier, Winning and losing, it doesn't fall on one shoulders. It's falling on the team shoulders. But most importantly, an interesting part of team team sport is that those relationships do matter, right? It's a, it's a support system within your, your profession, you know. And the authors also express that, you know, some sports, either uh, individual or, or team sports, different different sports in general, they may have different benefit 
in terms of mental health and coping system. So I think it may vary, like you mentioned, maybe track and field might be a sport where you feel more, there's more propensity of being anxious or depressed, you know. But I think that idea of that, the individual athletes might be feeling a little bit isolated in losing that, and compared to those that are in team sports, that the loss might be shared with a, with a group. I think that that's very important in that in sense of having a coping uh, mechanism. And right, I, but fun I, I can go it's, awry. It's a good point. Right, because, you know, team sports, they generally enter sometimes because of they want to have fun. But if the coaches are putting ridiculous amount of pressure and all they care about is the final result, you know, did you win, did you lose, you know, they're not there for the fun. Right. So they're, I mean, they're out there yelling and everything like that. Then you know we talked about this in the first episode. Right. About, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you something. So Dimitri, when you when you go to your kids' sports event as as a child, I'm, I'm sure you maybe. I mean, I'm gonna ask you. Do you tend to? Some parents might, but yourself. Do you think to? Do you tend to tell your kids to always keep the objective goal of sports is to have fun, right? You 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 put that in. You put that notion in them very early that it's not all about winning and losing. It's about also having fun when you what you're doing, right? Well, I'd like to say that I do, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not perfect. Um, what I, what I want to tell my son, especially with baseball, because he's in baseball, is I want to know what his goal is. You know, and he keeps telling me he wants to make it to the major leagues. And I say, well, if you want to make it to the major leagues, you need to do these things. And that is sometimes counter to having fun. You need to work. And, you know, because major league players, they may have fun, but it's a job. I mean, they, they do this every day of their lives. They get up, they go to the stadium, they practice, they stay after practice, they hit, they go home. Yeah, they make a lot of money and they probably have fun, but it's a job. And so when he tells me, well, I want to make it there, the answer is, well, you know, then fun is not really what you should be having. You should probably be working. But, you know, the the coaches, they're supportive, but they also want to win. And so it seems to me it depends on the level of where they are. So travel teams tend to want to win more. Rec teams tend to want to have fun more. So it really depends on where you're at. Right. That you know, makes from sense. what I've seen. You know, but these I things think can that, go awry. Right. I, I think that there's... There probably there's a shift between fun and, and work. I think young kids or adolescents, when they make that decision, dad, I want to do this for a living, then I think there's a shift. Okay, it's no longer fun. This is your future, right? If you're going to put schools in the backseat and you, you want to focus your entire energy into developing skills that could translate to having a professional career, then I think the stakes are higher. You invest more. And then to the point I was talking about, the the losing hurts more, right? You become a failure. What's your right. plan B? You know, we, we are letting down, are letting your family down, are you letting yourself down? So I think the once it become a profession, and that's what we do in this podcast. We occasionally we discuss athletes and their intermittent struggle, but sometimes most people don't even think that aspect of, you know, those people are doing it for a living. It's not a, a pickup game they're doing every Sunday. They actually, that's the lifeline. If they get injured, if they can play anymore, they, all of them don't have a plan B. So I think the, the right. higher the stakes, uh, the higher the risk of developing mental health issues. Right. At, at 11 years old, though, I don't know that that's the time to start doing that. You know, high school, maybe. I you agree. know, later in high school, trying to get into college and 
college sports we discussed before is essentially you know amateur it's not amateur anymore it's basically minor league professional sports now and so at that level yeah like you know but it's you're still talking about putting these people and these athletes into situations where they can get depressed when they put themselves in in positions where they can blame themselves for for failure and it's important to discern between general sadness and depression and clinical depression yeah i'll get into that but like before we we move on from spencer and i just want to add something you mentioned clearly that we don't know what happened there's so many reasons that could have caused whatever is going through we don't know but I wanted to, you asked a question that what was my first thought, right? My first thought was, I was conflicted. I thought it was a, a good thing that sports in the past couple of years, few years, let's say five years, the athletic community seems to be more open into addressing mental health in players. Now, I don't know if I was sure to make it public, how fully it was. You know, in my second part of my thought was, oh gosh, I hope that's, you know, that guy consented for that news to get out. You know, we don't know what it's going through. This year alone, Let's let's isolate NHL. This year alone, I think there's he might be the third person that entered the this program, right? I think uh, if I recall correctly, Detroit Red Wings. I think Jacob Vrana. If I, I hope I pronounce his last name well, he also spent time in the program, right? And Nashville Predators. He's a forward. Michael McCarron. He's actually in the program. So it's been what we're in third months into into. 2023 and we have three players and i think that's a good thing that they have that that avenue but yeah we don't know the reason there's, there's, there's a much of multitude of reason and the other point i was going to make is that you know there's a there's a new i guess a revolution in in sports that mental health is taken seriously in 2018 i guess right. uh, the nfl the nba might have been the two leagues that have been maybe more vocal more public about bringing on staff into their, their it seems right mental health staff and i think um the NFL Player Association and the NBA Player Association are doing a good job. In 2018, the NBA launched a program. They, what they said was they would hire a director. I mean, they did hire a director of mental health and wellness. And the program now serves as a source for players and assist them with a wide range of mental health issues. It might be for performance issues to help them perform better. It might be for performance or, or for mental health interest to, to, to their issues, to their personal issues at home, right? And those comprehensive mental health committees are, are, very important. You've seen the the Olympics, the the International Olympics Committee. They meet regularly to bring up new protocols into mental health, and I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, you ask a question: How depression and and, and sadness relates to to normal people? I, I think it's important for us having the opportunity to to clarify, you know, to everybody listening to us that depression and sadness are very common, but there's a distinction, right? And same thing for anxiety, you know. Um, but let's go into into the criteria for let's let's go for anxiety first, right? Anxiety, most people don't know what it is, and, and even myself as a professional, I, I sometimes have difficulty explaining to my patients what anxiety is because they don't know. It's it's so different to everybody, right? And we'll go into the DSM. What they say, you know, the DSM is a uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's the Bible, if you will, of psychiatry. And what they say, I mean, what we know before we go into this, what we know is that anxiety is normal, right? Stress is normal. I was something right. you, you're supposed to have anxiety. You're supposed and to you're supposed you're to be su- anxious. Right. It, it's a it's a it's a life protective factor. And I, I always tell my my clients, my patient, the, the one example I always tell people, when you cross the street, right, if you don't look left and right because you, you're not anxious, you're careless, you're at risk. Looking left and right is a normal anxiety because it's a protective factor. Now when it becomes an issue, 
when it becomes a disorder, that normal response, things, this anxiety, it's, it becomes permanent, pervasive, consistent, and it interferes with your, your daily living, right? It impedes with your ability to go to work, your ability to, to be an integral part of your family, to be functional in society, to attend to your biological needs, right? And it's, it, it moves from being worries to debilitating, right? And it may be associated with, with symptoms, physical symptoms, right? Restlessness, um, feeling like you're always wired, you know, um, always on edge, you're easily fatigued, your mental stamina is not the same, right? You, you perform at a lower level because you're constantly in your head, constantly worry about whatever's going to your life. If it's work, if it's, you know, money issues, you have difficulty concentrating, right? You, you're blanking, you become irritable, right? You, people, a lot of times we encounter friends and family that we've known for a lot of times and they suddenly become very difficult to be around, right? They become irritable, but we don't know what they're dealing with, right? Could be anxiety, who knows? And they can have physical symptoms, uh, physical symptoms, muscle tension, you know, headaches, gastric issues, right? We I always tell people, all of us, when we had exams or midterms or finals, we always felt wheezy inside. People deal with bowel movements, if you will. And the other thing that's most important, sleep disturbances. When you worry a lot, you cannot fall asleep, you're having weeks, you're not falling asleep, you're not sleeping well, and it's affecting your daily living, then that's, that might be a, a time for you to, to speak to a professional. Those are, those are clinical symptoms, right? And so when it comes to sports and anxiety, generally the prevalence of anxiety disorders in sports and the general population are pretty much the same. There's a couple of ones that are a little bit different. For instance, uh, generalized anxiety disorder tends to be higher in sports where there's judgment and aesthetics. So figure skating can be another judgment sport where judges make the decisions. All right. Finger, figure skating is the only one that comes to mind right now. Diving, um, you know, or kind of stuff. Yeah. everything has to be perfect. Uh, right. So, and because there's a sense of lack of control, you know, I've got to be, I've got to be perfect. And then these other people decide for me whether or not I've won. Generalized anxiety tends to be a little bit higher. It tends to be a little bit lower. And this shocked me when I read this is that it tends to be a lower in sports with higher risks. So motorsports like IndyCar racing and Formula One, luge. Uh, if you don't know what luge is, it's that Olympic sport where you get in that little car thing and you go down a, a mountain in ice. It, it's absolutely insane. I did those people go like 100 miles an hour down that thing. Aerial sports. And it may be linked to sort of like the adrenaline that they go through, but that generalized anxiety tends to be less in there. Panic disorder tends to be about the same, although exercise can feel like a panic attack sometimes. Social anxiety disorder, when you go out and there's some 50,000 people, you can feel like they're judging you, but that tends to be the same. But it also needs to be differentiated from something called competitive performance anxiety, which is generally referred to as choking or the yips or something like that, which we can talk about. That is something that is brought on by a completely different situation. And that can be brought on by anxiety related to the worry of failure. And it can be the risk factors for that have to do with being younger, less experienced. It could also be due to what we talked about earlier today and in our first uh, podcast, which is coaching behavior. If you feel like your coach is not supportive and very strict and on your case, and you feel like you don't have a lot of confidence in yourself or you're less experienced, you could develop this block 
it's you're at higher risk to develop this block. And the other thing that they found was social media. If you're on social media, if athletes are on social media, which they almost always are, and they get negative feedback and notifications, this could also lead them to feel anxious and in the moment feel like they're being judged and can put them at high risk, higher risk for these kinds of behaviors. And then the other thing is uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is slightly higher in athletes than the general population. But athletes tend to be the most superstitious people. And so that needs to be distinguished from superstition because you look at athletes sometimes and you can see them doing some crazy superstitious stuff, stuff that you would look at them and go, wow, that's got to be OCD, but it's not. One of the things that struck me that when I, when I read this, that when I was a kid that I noticed was no more Garcia Parra. And you can't see me doing this, but when he went into the batter's box or he stepped out of the batter's box, he would do this thing with his hands. He would adjust his gloves and I don't know, he, he would have to do it a certain number of times. When I saw that, I was like, wow, he's, that looks weird to me, but it was a thing that he did. And athletes do these kinds of weird things all the time. And so I put a, I put together a list of top five sports superstitions. And let me tell you something. When I started researching this list, there's like a hundred of these things. But I narrowed it down. The top five sports superstitions. That's Do you know any, by the way, um, that, that jump well, out? Well, I, I, I know the most famous one, right? Is it a, what is it, a Red Sox? Because of course with the Red Sox. And you've seen it in every single movies. And every, you hear everywhere you go in baseball. Um, oh, the, the curse of... Uh... Babe Ruth, was he the, the Red Sox? Babe Ruth, yeah. But but like athlete superstitions where they do stuff that that. What you see it, I mean, I think the when I see it the most, the MLB and the NBA. You know, if you like if you like pitchers and catchers, they always have those rituals, those those movements that they do, right? And mm -hmm. and basketball players at the free throw line, they all have a different ritual at the free throw line because they all have a different way of coping. I don't know if it's anxiety, but you mentioned OCD, right? At the, it might be a protective factor in athletes, right? It's, it's a sense like, what is OCD? It's a sense like you can control something. It's gaining control of, of, of maybe right. a false belief, maybe a false belief of controlling things, right? It gives you uh, reassurance that you're under control when you do that superstitious uh, ritual, right? That's right. And it makes you feel more comfortable. So those NBA players at the free throw line, if something go wrong, sometimes you might see that another player came and disrupted the rituals. They have to go back to zero. They have to because go in, do it again. Karma right, alone in their had mind, one. in their mind, they they control that moment, right? Um, it's in, and I think I'll, I'll make that point that anxiety disorder is, is a huge umbrella. You mentioned a lot of different, you know, different diagnoses or different components of anxiety, but it's a huge umbrella, and the way you cope with it might look like, in sports might look like OCD, right? But it might be just that's that's the way you feel like you're in control. That's right. That's right. So it's not a diagnosable thing. It's right. Just a, it's right. a coping mechanism in sports. It's exactly. Not something that, exactly. That reaches the level of disorder. That's right. And and these superstitions are one of those things, right? These are not diagnosable disorders. These are just quirky things that that athletes do to make them feel right. like they're in control of something that's not controllable. Right. And let me add this. I I, I would bet you these players, you don't see them doing these rituals outside of the environment and sports. You don't see them in a restaurant and doing right. these rituals. So that's when you can difference between the diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder that's and right. maybe a, a ritualistic controlling component of their own performance, right? So that's where you can draw a line and say, no, that you know behavior is not intrinsic to all different in, in different settings and different circumstances. It's that's know, right. just specializing in that moment.
That's right, and that's what makes it the superstition of trying to control your these random things that are happening to you in the sports versus a legitimate disorder that is controlling your life. So top five sports superstitions, and believe me, there's more. There are more. But top five. Number number five, Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs, they called him the chicken man because he would eat chicken before every game. And what he said was he started doing this early in his career, and his average would start to go higher and higher. And ever since then, he would just, that that's what he would do. And and Wade Boggs was one of the greatest hitters in the history of baseball. So who's to argue with chicken? I think I think I'm going to eat chicken tonight. Yeah, I love me some chicken, man. Wade Boggs. Who can argue? Number four, we can argue about who the goat is in basketball, but we can't argue that when Michael Jordan wore UNC shorts underneath his Bulls uniform, he won. And that's number four. Jordan would wear his uh, UNC the University of North Carolina Tar Heels basketball shorts underneath his Bulls uniform before every game. In fact, it was such a big deal. And again, dating ourselves, or myself anyway, he made a movie called Space Jam. Not the LeBron Space Jam, but the original Space Jam with Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny. In that movie, <laughs> Bugs Bunny has to go on a on a quest to go find Michael Jordan's UNC shorts into his house because... Michael Jordan will not play the game to save the Looney Tunes without his UNC shorts that he has to put on underneath his Looney Tunes uniform. It's in that movie. That's how big of a deal this is to him. He even put it in his own movie. Number three, and this one, I got to say, is kind of gross. Yes, I'm judging you, Serena. Serena Williams doesn't change her socks during an entire tournament until she loses. I, I've got nothing for that. I just keep going. I've got nothing for that. I'm sorry. I, I, I understand. Look, I understand it. I really do. I really understand it. I just, I got nothing for it. Really do. Number two, and this one, this one I really liked, and that's why it's it's so high, is Patrick Waugh. I don't know if you know who Patrick Waugh is, but he ruined my college days by by defeating the Florida Panthers the only time they've actually ever been in the finals. He played for the Colorado Avalanche. They they beat the Panthers in the finals in 97, 96. Anyway, he has a ritual where he skates backwards towards the net until the last second, and then he turns around. And he believes that that somehow shrinks the net, and that is his superstition. And who can argue with him because he's one of the greatest goaltenders ever. Right. So All that matters is he believed it. That's all that matters. You know what? It kept the damn puck out of the net for the Panthers that year. <sighs> anyway, we're going to continue on from my trauma yeah. as, a, as a hockey fan. And the first one, Turk Wendell, baseball player. So he had a number of these things, and they were all in this, in this order. He was a pitcher. So at the end of the inning, he would walk back to the dugout. He would jump over the baseline. Then he would eat exactly four pieces of black licorice. And then he would spit that out and he would brush his teeth. That was his superstition. And that, folks, is the top five sports superstitions. There's a lot more. There's a and lot there's more. A lot I'll, more. Just add, I'll just add one thing. Steph Curry, his pregame shooting, it's impressive. If you, when you have time, go on, Google, go on YouTube and type Steph Curry pregame warm-up. He does this exact same thing. He runs in the same spot. 
this exact same shot with his trainer. You might call it practice, but I think it's a little bit superstition in there as well. And and who can argue because he's literally the greatest shooter in the history of basketball, right? Cannot get cannot get that one. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier depression. I think I think you know that's a, that's a big one. That's a big one. People say, you know, you you you've heard before when athletes come out and and which is great by the way, which is great. They don't have to do it when they come out and disclose their mental health issues. Nobody has to do that. I don't ask my clients to disclose their mental health, but when you have a platform, when you have that many people you can reach to and you decide to be selfless and disclose your mental health issues in public, I think it's uh I think it's, it's something that you should you should applaud, right? Um because it, they, they getting into the fight of fighting that stigma in mental health. And depression in, in normal people shouldn't be any different than depression in athletes. The fact that you're making, you know, sometimes hundred million dollar deals and you're still depressed. It actually shows you that depression can, you know, everybody can suffer from depression. But uh, I think we, we need to make the distinction between the sadness, that which is normal. Everybody could have sadness. You know, everybody could have mood swings during the day. But in our interest today as professionals, um, we want to discuss what is clinical depression, you know, mostly usually called in, in clinical settings, major depressive disorders, right, or clinical depression. Um, so, you know, what we know is that it is a common, it's serious, it's a mood disorder, if you will, that's how we describe it. And those who suffer from depression, they experience persistent feeling. That's the difference between sadness and depression, right? There's, they experience persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, and they lose an interest in activities they once enjoyed. They might, if you're talking about sports, they might not feel apt or capable of getting on the field, although they used to enjoy it, right? And aside from having emotional issues, that would cause a depression. People can also have physical symptoms, right? Like chronic pain or, or again, gas, gas issues. And there's some criteria that we, we use in our field to diagnose clinical depression. Again, we go back to that famous Bible, the DSM-5, that outlines the, the criteria um, for diagnosis of depression. And, and what we know is that people have to have the symptoms for at least two weeks, right? Remember, we said consistent, not only sadness, but consistent feelings and symptoms that debilitate you for over two weeks. And these symptoms have to be present, right? You're depressed for most of the day, every day, right? You have a diminished interest in your what, what, what gives you pleasure, like I mentioned earlier. Um, you start getting into your 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 routine. You start, you, your pattern of life changes, right? You stay in bed or you don't go to work or you can even affect your appetite where you, you don't eat, you don't feel like having any, any, any you know, interaction with any people. And that could cause into physical uh, decline, you know, losing weight, not taking care of yourself, not bathing. And you can also be very distracted. Your mind is clouded, right? You feel like you have slow thinking. You're not, people notice that you're not, you're, you're not the same at work or in your, within your family and friends. Um, and that can also come with a lack of energy, you know, staying in bed all day, not having the strength to get up, right? And having when you go more seriously you have those things of worthlessness and those thought those dark thoughts that people call suicidal ideation like you you can come you can go on a spectrum of having passive death wishes you know thinking about the world be better off without you or having active you know serious suicidal thoughts where you can have yourself thinking about the way you, you wouldn't um, be around anymore and that's you know we and i'm thinking opportunities say that if you listening to this and you've had these feelings and you felt like this for several 
days or weeks and you don't know what it is, then that, that's the time for you to consult with a professional and then to get in front of it. Because the longer you wait in depression, the worse it tends to get. And remember, you know, sadness is normal. I don't want to make people, I don't want people to believe that feeling sadness is an issue. Sadness is a normal human emotion. Depression, however, is a clinical issue, right? When it interferes with your daily living, you know, in, in short. And if we tie into sports, we've heard people from all different leagues coming out and, and discussing the, the depression in the media. Trust your doctor. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the word is is gold. Really? Okay. How many how many doctors do you have? Um, actually, I, I have one. Thank God, I have my primary care physician, and thankfully, I'm young. I there will come a day I'll be more than one. That's for sure. That that's good. Got one too. I trust him too, but that's not entirely typical. Statistics are uh, not great when it comes to trust in the healthcare system. There's yeah. uh a new tweet that came out. I don't know if it's new anymore, but it was a few weeks ago. Byron Jones, who is a corner for the Dolphins. Or can we say he was a corner for the Dolphins at this point? But he tweeted out I'm on uh, February 25th, and I'm going to read it word for word here so that we don't misquote him. Quote, Much has changed in eight years. Today I can't run or jump because of my injuries sustained playing this game. Do not, and those are capitalized, take the pills they give you. Do not, capitalized again, take the injections they give you. If you absolutely must, consult an outside doctor to learn the long-term implications. And then he followed that up with, It was an honor and privilege to play in the NFL, but it came at a regrettable cost I did not foresee. In my opinion, no amount of professional success or financial gain is worth avoidable chronic pain and disabilities. Godspeed to the draft class of 2023. Wow. And uh, we talked about injuries on a podcast here a couple of podcasts ago with Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and how Lamar Jackson might have been protecting himself for a contract. And here's Byron Jones essentially saying, don't trust the doctor. Am I misinterpreting that? Well, I mean, at, at the risk of being too trivial, I, I, I'll make a pun. That sounds to be, to me, it sounds a lot like Monday morning quarterback, right? I mean, when he was playing, ooh, I don't know. Ooh, it's, 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 okay. I'm, I'm taking a risk. I admit I'm taking a risk. I don't know. We don't know what was the discussion when he was playing and what was the injury he dealt with. But I mean, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't matter when and how he says it. I think what he says is, is, is valuable, but it's nonetheless very controversial, right? You mentioned statistics. In 2013, I think roughly around that time, you mentioned earlier that the leagues, the NFL, the NBA, were the two major leagues that went forward with mental health. I don't think they had a choice. I, I, I think that it was becoming too, too public. And in 2013, there was a survey in the NFL, right? And they found out that 78% of the players that were polled did not trust their team medical staff. 78%, man. And a mere forty-three percent, in a mere not even fifty percent, forty-three percent of them said, or not said, this they they rated their team doctors as quote good, 
end quote, right? It's not like they're raving about Judson Dotter. It just, it sounds like, eh, that's my choice. That, that's the only choice I've got, let's say. But 78% in 2013 did not trust their team doctors. That that says a lot, man. Yeah. The, well, we, we're, ten, we're 10 years later, let's, let's be fair, and a lot have been said and, and done in the leagues. Hopefully, I can find a survey post 10 years after 2013 that, that numbers, uh, those numbers go down. But I, I understand, you know, if you go deep in, in, into it, there, there's got to be a conflict of interest, right? There's got to be a conflict. I mean, the concept of team doctors has, it, that's an inherent conflict of interest, right? Um, there was one report I read in 2016. It was a 500 thing page um, report that was done by two researchers um, from Harvard Medical School, right? Harvard University, let's say. And what they found in that report is that, or what they concluded is that the dual, the dual obligations of a team doctor to players and ownership creates legal and ethical quandaries that can threaten player health. And I'm reading that report, that conclusion. I'm like, did it really take 500 pages to come up with that conclusion? Right? I mean, it, it's, it's, but, it seems well, yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like a... Yeah, it's almost like, duh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Duh, like, right? 500 right. pages to say the doctor that is hired by the team finds himself or finds themselves or herself into that duality, that 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 conflict, that do I protect my player's health and and physical well-being for sake of longevity or for the sake of their own choosing? A player might want to play, or a player might might want not to play. Likewise, a, a owner might say, "I do not want you to play because you're my property. You my investment. Do not play." Or in the flip side, you can say, "I don't care. You will play because you're our best player." So that. That duality, what the player wants, what the owner wants, it's difficult. It's difficult. Now, I will point out that every single ethical code that's written down, whether it's from the AMA, whether it's from the CBA, all of those things say that the primary relationship from a team doctor is to the player. Now, is that the way it actually plays out in reality? You pointed out a number of different ways that that may not be the way it actually plays out. And I want to read something from the collective bargaining agreement in the NFL, uh, a quote from the collective bargaining agreement. This is from uh, an article on how physicians, how team physicians and players interact and possible ways to change the interaction and, and facilitate better doctor-patient relationships with NFL players and facilitate better trust. This is a quote from the NFLPA CBA with the NFL. Quote, each club's physician's primary duty is providing medical care. Let me, let me start this again. Each club physician's primary duty is providing medical care shall be not to the club, but instead to the player patient. This duty shall include traditional physician patient confidentiality requirements. In addition, all club physicians and medical personnel shall comply with all federal, state, and local requirements, including all ethical rules and standards established by an applicable government and or other authority that regulates or governs the medical profession in the club city. Okay, so let's break down the first line here, which, you know, I, don't, I read that twice poorly, but it's written not fantastic. Each it's supposed to confuse physicians. You. It's supposed to. It's written by lawyers, right? Right. Each it's club supposed to confuse physicians. Primary duty is providing medical care 
each club physician's primary duty in providing medical care shall be not to the club, but instead to the patient, to the player patient. I, I think I butchered it like seven times, like seven times. Okay. Each club physician's primary duty in providing medical care shall be not to the club, but instead to the player patient. That time I read it correctly. Okay. So in providing medical care, not to the club, but to the player patient. So what happens if they're not providing medical care? Is the, is the duty to the club then? So patient comes in, right? Player comes in, you give them treatment, player walks out of the room, you're not providing care anymore. Is your duty now to the club to go to run to the club and be like, you know what I just did? He's not going to be very good anymore. What is that? What does that legal language mean? Or is there confidentiality? Now, okay, this is a snippet. It's maybe even taken out of context. We're not reading the entire CBA as far as confidentiality or anything like that. But you know, there's problems with that language, assuming that we're not taking it out of context. You know, these doctors, they're put in, they're put in like these positions where the player comes in and they may have a problem and you want to get them back out on the field because it helps the patient or it helps the team and it may not help the player. And, you know, I'm going to bring this up again, but yeah. Tua is a great example this year, right? That, 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 that. I think that doctor got fired, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but let, let me let me be controversial. I'm not going to give you the answer or the solution, but I'm going to pose a question. More controversial than we're already doing. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I'll, I'll push it. I'll push the envelope. You know, I think it's good for <laughs> for a good podcast, right? And I'm going to be rhetorical in that question. Why do teams need a doctor on the staff? Why can't players, when they're sick, go see their own doctors at their own offices. I get the point that the in-game in game condition, you need a staff. Right, I was going to say, in-game. You, you can prove what, what, what happened to, to, to the Dublin, right, to, uh, with a heart attack, right? You need one. On, 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 that, that's, that's a given. But why do they retain a doctor in their roster, right? I mean, it's good. It's good. But like I said, it's controversial. Doctors are available everywhere. I don't have – I mean, I'm, I work in a hospital – my doctors could very well be outside of my, my, my hospital, right? Why should I, as a player, why should I have to go to a team, a hired physician to check my knee after I played Sunday night? Because I need you next week, man. Exactly. So we're paying, we're paying that doctor. I mean, it, I, listen, I, it's, a, it's a difficult conversation. I, I, they should have doctors available. I'm not sure either that doctor should be retained by the team. That, that's my concern. Well, one of the what? one of the approaches here and in this article was both. You have a doctor that's retained by the team, and then you have an outside committee that reviews that doctor's or evaluates that doctor, and then you have a second opinion that the player gets outside of that. Well, and okay, uh, but how does that is that going to be something that the team wants to do because that may delay a player getting back on the field? And in the NFL, you know, you get a week, right? Or sometimes four days because of Thursday. But in what do you do in the NBA? LeBron went down, what, last week, right? With the foot. And he said he heard yeah, something yeah, pop. Yeah. He played the rest of the game, though, didn't he? I think. Or he's also LeBron. But <laughs> yeah, but LeBron gets in. The man is not twenty years old anymore, right? And he said he heard something pop. That needs to be evaluated immediately. 
and they I, need him the next day because without LeBron, the Lakers are not doing anything. I'm going to be speculating. LeBron is known to have all his stuff paid by him. LeBron is known to go to teams and brings the entire organization with him. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know that for a fact. But I'm sure LeBron has his own doctors, has his own trainers. It's known to bring his own trainers to wherever he goes, to the other teams he goes. So uh, I don't, we don't know what we don't know, right? Um, but hey, I don't know. Uh, it's controversial, and I don't have okay, a solution. But, but I have so not LeBron, but another player. You know, he messes up his knee. They need him the next day. Uh, Kevin Durant bring his own posse of doctors. It was Steph Curry another one? He got injured a few months ago. They need to evaluate him today. They need to get an MRI. They need a doctor. Right, right. It, it's it's it puts doctors in position, and I'm not I'm not crying for these guys, but it puts them in a position where they have a dual relationship. And it's an ethical cluster it's an ethical, F. Yeah. So I don't want to curse, but it's like an ethical Th- cluster right. F. And and I don't have a solution, but it just dawned on me. Why isn't why aren't those doctors not paid by the pre association? They have those association in the NBA and the NFL. They have so much power. I don't see. I mean, I don't know the details of the legality and the contracts and the CBA details, but I don't see why a doctor that has signed with Dolphins would not be hired by the NFL, um, the, the NFL pre association. Just to they uh, they would be hired by the association, but they associate with a team. So the duty. Or the, the allegiance would be solely to the body of players, right? But, but is the NFL know, going to want to do that? Is the league going to want to do that? Because then it's like probably not. Well, your duty probably is not, not the league. The duty is to the player. And what do I get for my forty million dollar contract? That that right. You know, if it was that know. easy, they would have done it. So I'm, I'm guessing that the, the NFL uh, would not, you know, would not co-sign on that one. I'll give you another scenario: Kyrie Irving, who didn't want to get a vaccine. And he goes to a doctor who's anti-vax. He says, well, my doctor says I don't need to get the vaccine. And, well, now I have a doctor that says I don't have to do that. Now, he didn't do that. But I'm just giving an example of if you have the player's doctor who's beholden to the player, who's solely a player doctor, and now you've got a guy, again, he didn't do this. (laughs) He chose that on his own. But if you have a guy, you have your own doctor, and this could be anything, right? It could be a knee, right? My doctor says my knee hurts. Well, you know, were you going to go see our club doctor? No, my doctor says my knee hurts and that's all I need. But we're paying you $30 million in the NBA. Well, my doctor says my knee hurts. I can't play. And these mo- this money is guaranteed in the NBA. Right. And so well, don't, what don't do you get, do in that situation? Yeah. Well, don't don't get me fired up with, with Kyrie Irving and vaccines. That's a whole different talking. <laughs> but I, I, I'll... I, we can we can spend a, a day with that one, but let, let's flip the coin. I'll give you one other example, and maybe we can you know move on. But I will give you one example. I I remember vividly. I remember Chris Bosh's contract with the Heat. We had a blood clot. Nothing. Right, nothing athletic. Yeah, no, yeah, no. That was uh, Alonzo Mourning at the kidney. Chris Bosh had an issue with blood clot, and it's nothing athletic related. It's nothing. It's not a, a articulation. It's not a knee. He had a blood clot develop in his calf while he was traveling, and then. That thing dragged a year, and I recall, I don't know the details of the conversation, but I recall Chris Bosch went out, he sought out his own doctor, and right. thought that's going to be, and he, and he said the doctors cleared him to play. That's right. But the league, the but, Miami but Heat. But the team refused to play not. him. 
refused. Right. Refused to plan because of the I don't know X Y and Z. I couldn't I couldn't understand the liability. You know, you you, you bump head with a player, you get a, a, a elbow in your head, and you have That's a right. massive hemorrhagic bleed that you can stop, right? That's because right. you probably would have would have to play with blood thinners. You know, so I could see the league saying, listen, you get hurt on the court and you have a bleed, you might not wake up from that bleed. I, I don't think it was um, the league. I think it was the heat. It, it, it was the heat. It was the heat. But I'm sure, you know, it, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I side with the, with the heat on that one. But who are we to remove, um, uh, you know, that that right from Chris Bosch, that autonomy from Chris Bosch, right? He went out and sought his, his own doctor's advice. And the doctor said, hey, yeah, you can play if you're on blood thinners. Yeah, yeah, and if he does get on the court and has a massive head bleed because he plays, you know, a, ra- a somewhat physical style and he gets hit in the head and, and dies on the right. court, then what? You know, I, right. look, and, and so mistrust that, in physicians leads to, is, a, is correlated with poorer outcomes too. And this is not just players, this is... Right. Non-athletes. Gym. So right. the, more, the more people distrust their their doctors, the and this is not causality. This is correlation. It's correlated with more negative outcomes. And sure. so right. it's it's and and this is a problem throughout you know the country is that people tend right. to mistrust their doctors and athletes or people. But I I, I open a all Pandora's box. I kind of wrong. That that's the classical classical example with the black community and in healthcare so you can go yes. back and yeah. relate it to the Tuskegee the Tuskegee study they did in Alabama the, the syphilis study it was primarily done on black people and since then you could probably make a valid point since then black population have had a tougher time to trust in the doctors and black population has poor outcome in healthcare right in health uh, um, comorbidities and, and, and disease and in prevention and in treatment so you know that's that's a whole different topic, but to your point, the trust between a, a, a physician and a, and a patient is not only inherent to sports; it's, it's a general population. The, the difference is that we get to see that relationship struggle in, in the media for our consumption. You know, everything's publicized. Trust is is, is vital for for patient and doctors and, and, and well being. That's right, and I don't know that there's a good there's a good answer for it in sports right now, and you're seeing it played out. I, I don't I don't know if it's more than usual, but you know, with the Lamar Jackson thing and now this Byron Jones thing, it it seems to be it seems to be more in the public light. Maybe social media is making it come up more to light, but this is this is not an athlete only problem. Um, this is this is a a people problem. And, you know, I've got, I had people, I've got people come into my office and say, you know, they, they've Googled stuff, you know, like, well, okay, but, oh, man. you know, it's, 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 you have information, but you don't really know what to do with that information. And, okay, I mean, you know, but I, I can't treat you based on your medical opinion of information that you read. And so you get into these kinds of back and forth with patients. But, I, you know, I wanted to read from this this article. We're reading way too much today, by the way. We're reading way too much. We got we to do a whole segment of, like, Dimitri and Steph read. Yeah. But, too much. but I but, promise, guys, I, we don't know what to read. 
Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do know how to read after I just butchered like this, this, the CBA thing like five times. But <laughs> I promise you, I got the last one right. I promise you, I got the last one right. But I wanted to read the the questions that they asked in this survey on the distrust of the healthcare system. The, there was a scale that they used, and they asked some questions, and they got it was the scale was strongly agree, agree, not sure, disagree, strongly disagree, and these were some of the questions. People die every day because of mistakes by the healthcare system. 82% strongly agreed or agreed with that. If a mistake were made in my healthcare, the healthcare system would try to hide it from me. 58% either strongly agreed or agreed. The healthcare system cares more about holding costs down than it does about doing what is needed for my health. 64% either strongly agreed or agreed. Some medicines have things in them that they do not tell you about. 71% either strongly agreed or agreed. Now, there were some positives. I'm going to read the positive. The healthcare system puts my medical needs... The healthcare system puts my medical needs above all other considerations when treating my medical problems. 48% either... Uh, sorry, 50% either agreed or strongly agreed. Is that positive, only 50%? Because 48% either disagreed or strongly disagreed. So it's about 50-50. And I receive high-quality medical care from the healthcare system. So 80, uh, 70, sorry, 79% either strongly agreed or agreed. So that's positive. But that, that was the only two that even can come close to any positive things about saying about the healthcare system. And the one that really stood out there is some medicines have things in them that they do not tell us about. Like what? You, you know what that reminds me of? Our last like conspiracy, episode. <laughs> conspiracy yeah. theories. If, if you guys have not, have not heard the last episode, go back and understand why yeah. it's an issue. Oh, my God. I, and, you know, yeah. and look, the healthcare system cares more about holding costs down. If they made a mistake in the healthcare, would they try to hide it from me? <sighs> wow. People really don't trust. They, they think that the healthcare system, and this is not athletes. This is this study was done on you know, non-athletes. Right. People, people, people don't believe trust that us. the healthcare system is not out to help them in general. And, um, you know, th- and, this and was I'm 961 saying- people. A prop, right. mostly white, uh, mean age of forty-seven, and wide and, range of education and, and income. So, right, you know, they have access. Generalize to that. So, yeah. And that, I'm going to make that point. They have access. Those, you know, that population, that 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 you know, that group. It's fair to say they have access to information. Now, I, we're not saying that people are wrong. People are bad. People are stupid. We might be saying that. The healthcare system, the providers, us, it might be, it might, it might mean that we are the problem, that we have a information issue, we have an information problem, right? We there's something that we're not doing right. Okay, so yeah, I'll just leave it. Maybe we need to do a better job of of informing people or or sure or Or, or telling them things or communicating better. Right. Let me drop that. Why is misinformation is more easily accessible than the right information? Why is that? You know, I don't have the answer, but just food for thought. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. 
All right, Steph, our guest today is Erica Smith with The Lavender Way. She is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida, a certified hypnotherapist, and she is also certified in trauma. Is there anything else that I missed that you would like to tell me about yourself or tell the people about yourself? Yes, thank you. Um, I actually do a lot of consultation work where I'm, I'm basically trying to break the stigma of mental health. So I do a lot of educating and training um, individuals, most specifically first responders, um, in how they can take care of themselves to prevent burnout, stress, and even leading to symptoms related to trauma. Awesome. Well, welcome aboard, Erica. I think, Thank I think you. Welcome. I think you, you'll fit right in. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Especially with the topics that we were discussing today. What we wanted to talk to you about specifically was domestic violence. One of the things that has recently come out was an incident with Zach Stacy, who's a football player, and his was it his wife? I don't want to get that wrong, but I might be getting that wrong. Was it a wife I'm or not girlfriend? Sure. Or the mother I think they share for sure. Right. I think they share a kid. At least at least one kid I know of, but we don't know the life story, to be honest. Okay. So there was a an incident of domestic violence in their home. He spent about six months in jail for the incident and he came out and then she posted a video where she discusses the incident and discusses how he has change through therapy and CBT and discusses domestic violence and how it affected her and how it affects people and how she didn't seem to know where to turn and how to deal with it. So I wanted to go in that direction as far as we're not going to talk specifically about them, but we wanted to talk in general about domestic violence and how it affects people because I have patients that have been affected by it. I don't know if you have Steph but yeah. it is pervasive in mental health and it right. causes trauma and that's something that you deal with in therapy. So what I wanted to start out is asking you, is there a specific definition of domestic violence? Well, depending on who you look at, yes, there are specific definitions, but just to keep it clear cut, domestic violence is the violence that's happening in home, the people are living together. There's also um, IPV, which is where you're not living with the person, but they're still trying to control and manipulate um, the relationship through violence. There are different types of violence, domestic violence. The most common one we know is, of course, the physical. And then there is definitely the sexual, which also kind of falls, but is separate. There is emotional and there is financial. All of them involve a high level of control um, within the relationship, there's a disparity of control. So it's not like, okay, you're in charge of this, I'm in charge of that. It's one person who is um, basically in control of everything that's happening with that person. Is the only difference between DV, domestic violence, and IPV, the living situation? Yeah, because you can still be in a relationship, but we're, we're dating or we're not living in the same household but they still find ways to control the individual. Of course, it gets more intense um, when they actually move in together. And a lot of the research is showing um, with technology becoming 
more common within the household that actually has increased the ability and the type of control that they have because now there's cameras involved. There's locking doors and windows where there are alarms and, you know, one person may have the, the code so you can't get out without the other person knowing that you've opened the door. Well, I was going to ask that. How, how can an individual control you when you don't live with them? How is that? How is that possible? Because people, yeah. people are going to be like, yeah, they don't live with you, whatever. Like that's that's not a thing. But how? How? It's still possible. So it's how, still how very it possible. possible. Um, um, another way is through the other person's job, um, where they, they people will do many different things. I mean, I had my situation where I was a director and I had an employee who was. Um, in a domestic violence situation. Um, it was an intimate partner, which is the IPV, intimate partner violence. Um, but he was over at the house all the time. And when he felt that he could not control her, he would actually call the job. He would say um, really negative things about her, accuse her of doing certain things with the intention of getting her in trouble with the company that she worked for. Thankfully, you know, me knowing what I know about domestic violence and mental health, I didn't, you know, listen. Um, it did escalate to where he even began to threaten me because I was not giving in to his requests and his demands. So it, 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 it can happen. It also happens through family members as well. They control family members. Let, let me ask you this, Erica. In, it might be but abstract, but is it, is it possible that a victim of domestic violence or intimate, you know, IPV, is it possible for the victim not being aware that they're being a victim, meaning financially and might it be able to be brought up to the person's attention that, hey, you might be a victim of financial, you know, domestic, you know, controlling or violence, if you will? Absolutely, especially in the beginning. And you also have to be careful and look at cultural and cultural values and traditions that also play a part because what we may consider here in the United States as, oh no, they shouldn't be doing that. And a lot of other cultures, that is the norm. And if they have moved to the United States and that's happening, they're not going to see it the way we see it. They're going to see it as this is this is how it is in my country, or this is what we do in, in our culture. This is a part of our tradition. So they may not recognize it as actually being something that's violent and and that they can actually get out of if they need to or, or want to. One of the things that people say about these things uh, and, and it, it keeps them from understanding, I think is they say things like, well, if someone did that to me, I just, I just leave, you know, like no one's going to abuse me. You know, if they, if they hit me or if they, if they tried to control my finances, I just, I just walk out. Why is it so hard for people to get out of these situations, to extract themselves from these situations, because it seems like for people that are sitting on their couch and Monday morning quarterbacking these things with their potato chips, saying, yeah, I, it would never happen to me, it would just, I just walk out. And they're probably right, that wouldn't happen to them, because what we're really looking at, um, especially when I look at it through a trauma lens, I'm really seeing there is history, there's background. So a person who is the aggressor and understand a woman can be an aggressor as well, not just men. It's not, this is not just a man on a woman thing. We're also talking same sex and, um, and, and woman to man 
woman being the aggressor. Um, those who are the aggressor, believe it or not, they are very charming outside. You know, when they are in social circles, they're that nice guy, that wonderful guy um, or woman who does so much, but behind closed doors, it's another story. So how did the person get involved? Well, I always say they're already was something pre-existing, some level of depression, some level of so of low self-esteem on their part. If we're looking through the trauma lens, I'm looking for people-pleasing behaviors because they're already coming from um, home environments that may have had some level of aggression where they learned to be submissive in order not to get into trouble or to have the harsh or critical uh, commentaries that would come with it. So mm -hmm. it's almost a way of survival and they don't think of it, oh, this is what I'm doing to survive. So even though they are out of that initial situation, the propensity to continue to get or to find other persons is high because that's what they're familiar with. Not necessarily that this is what I agree with, this is what I want in my life. I'm definitely not saying that, but there's a familiarity that they understand. So they engage, they enter into those relationships. Even when they get out of those relationships, they still have the propensity to find other partners that, um, express some level of abuse or high high levels of control. So it's a cycle. It is definitely a sense. cycle. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Well, I'm glad you brought the the issue with different genders or same genders or male being a victim. And, and I guess my, my question is in your experience with your clients, how difficult, it, you know, what's the difference between helping female victim versus male victim? And even I, I'll throw in, um, racial background, right? Black male being victimized and being, you know, you have being the provider, how difficult it is for, for this group of, of clients and helping them out. It's extremely difficult. Actually, whether the victim is a woman or a male, it's hard because you're asking, you, you're actually shining a light on something that they've been trying to hide for different reasons. They're feeling a lot of shame there's a lot of self-blame and that leads to a lot of guilt. So women are used to kind of being more expressive with their emotions. When it comes to men, it's a lot harder because the stigma is significant. Um, and usually people underestimate what's actually happening um, with the man. Um, you just need to be you know, more assertive or whatever have you. They really don't understand what's actually happening. So for the man to begin to confess and say, it also means explaining how come you weren't able you know, to control this little tiny woman or it depends on who you're talking to and their reference point, right? Um, but of course, if you're in therapy and you're saying this to your therapist, it's it's the same across the board. You're going to help bring awareness to what's going on, help them understand the abuse cycle, help them understand the continuum, help them understand how they got into this situation, what was happening with them. And then the final thing is um, creating a plan of exit if that's what they choose, because not everyone chooses a plan of, of exit. It makes yeah. sense that, you know, female on male DV would be stigmatized, you know, oh, you're the big, strong guy. Why can't you handle this little woman? Mm -hmm. But why do you think it's the other way around? Why would women be stigmatized for having domestic violence against them? Because it seems like this is a, this is one of these mental health issues that nobody seems to care about 
in, in the public yeah. sphere. It's it, especially in like court cases, for instance, when women, you know, fight back and and have incidents where they are where they kill their husband or they they hit their husband, and they're the ones that are arrested. Correct. And then they and then they uh, use the battered woman defense, and everybody's like, no. Yeah, you're absolutely Why correct. Uh, you know, honestly, that's like the best question in the world. Um, because, and this is an old uh, research that was done, but it's it sticks out in my mind because I'm sure it has grown. Um, but in the early 2000s, there was some research that was done and it was found that 75% of the women who were incarcerated had existing um, restraint orders against their partners. They were there for killing or uh, wow. attempted murder if you know it wasn't fully successful. So they were incarcerated for that. But 75% of those women had existing restraining orders against these men. They were believed, but you hear the, the adage of, okay, well, this is all we can do is put your restraining order up, you know, um, and then you're, you're left to your own device as to how you enforce that. And basically it's kind of like, okay, well, they can't come on the property, but they come on the property, they come in the house. They, um, especially if you were married and they had, you know, certain access and they're familiar with your routine, they'll come to your job. I have had that happen um, where the, the aggressor came out, was waiting for the person at their job. So it, you know, and that didn't violate the code because it was only for the home. She didn't think it was going to happen at, at the job. So there is a really low level of believability, um, depending on where you are and who you're working with. Uh, some people may take it more seriously. One of the things that was, I think, the scariest to me was during the pandemic when we were actively shut down. And I was very heavy listening to reports and things of that nature. And the one that scared me, well, there's a lot that scared me during the pandemic, but one of the things that scared me was that the rate of abuse reports significantly dropped. And everybody thought, oh, well, that's good, right? And I was like, no, they are stuck for three months with their abuser. They have no way to communicate to anybody. And since that time, the frequency of domestic violence cases has gone up as well as the intensity of the actual acts have gone up. So I honestly, as I sit here and answer, I, I really don't know what it's going to take for people to realize that this is a real thing. It does happen and we need to begin to take it more seriously, regardless of who the victim is or who the aggressor is. Wow. That, that's a great point. That's a great, I never thought about it that way with during, during COVID. I, I thought logically, you know, people always joke around, spending more time with a spouse, they fight more. I thought logically during COVID, that number would have increased, but I never saw it that way. Let, let me be a little bit more controversial. I, I'm sure you, you know, talking about sports and everything, I, I, you may have seen the story, Zach Stacy and Christy Evans, which, which is his girlfriend. And yes. I, to, to, to recount it very shortly, she had made an allegation and she proved that with videotapes that he had been physically abusive towards him and he went to jail and whatnot. Do you think there's ever a possibility of a way backwards or maybe way forward or, you know, uh, you know, getting past the trauma and getting back into relationship with that person or the, the, the aggressor? Mm -hmm. And do, do you think uh, in your job, 
with your, with your clients? Is there any discussion about how do we go forward with that same relationship? How do we forgive and, and go on? Because in that case, she makes a point that her aggressor might have himself been victimized in his past. A hundred percent. Traumas. A hundred percent. Right. So I'm curious to see in your discussion with your patients, how often that comes that comes up that I want to go back with my relationship or how do we do that? All the time. They want to go back all the time. They feel some level of responsibility. Even when you're discussing and helping them understand, they still take on the responsibility of why that person became angry. That's why I said it's it's a cycle um, on both sides. Uh, the aggressor has definitely witnessed um, sometime in their past, in their development, this uh, some level of aggression. Um, talking about the NFL, these are highly aggressive men, period, <laughs> the story. It's a very aggressive sport, what we're talking about, right? Um, and coaches and owners and people who are invested in this, they see that aggression is, yeah, put it out there on the field um, and let it let it be out there on the field. Yes. You're right. You know, Stacey, um it's not it's not an outlier. The NFL, right? I, I was doing some I did some 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 research, you know, there's this long history of NFL players getting involved in domestic violence and getting in the media. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder sometimes why is it the NFL? You know, the numbers I've seen is that since two thousand, right, there was more than a hundred players that have been arrested. Hundred and thirty four to be exact, right? That have been arrested for domestic violence. And I, I don't know, I mean it would be too simplistic to say, oh, it's because of head trauma, but there's other sports that had trauma. So my, I'm going to be more controversial even. Is that also part of the culture? You know, you know, most NFL players tend to be from the same, you know, majority of players tend to be from the same racial group, right? Do you think there's a, talking about the past in the, in the culture, do you think there's a, you know, confounding um, relationship between race, domestic violence, and, and sports, possibly in the NFL, which is a violent sport? Yeah, that's heavily controversial because there is what we see and there is what we don't see. So when we're talking about the NFL, and please understand, I used to do vocational coaching very early in my career. So, you know, there's all the aptitudes and interests and things of this nature to, to link you to a job or a career that resonates with who you are, your personality, your viewpoints, your values, right? That really hasn't changed. So I do look at... When I'm working with first responders, specifically the police, I always ask in my sessions with them if they are former military or military background, because there's a high, high correlation from being in that atmosphere and having it translate from military to civilian life. This would be the same thing. What are we seeing? I, I didn't get the stats on... Um, ethnicities or cultures uh, in domestic violence. But when we are looking at football players, we are seeing a lot of black men. And that's the reality of it, right? Um, Zach is a, a black man. And I don't know his background, therefore I, I really can't speak in detail to it. But there is a level of anger that's innate, that's there, right? And it's a double-edged sword because that aggression gets played out. That's what makes them a good player. 
you know um my brother played football in high school and college and it was the funniest thing to us because he is such a pacifist but when he was on the field he had to like pull out this anger this these resources so he could do the tackling so he could you know hold back the line and everything else that that you know that goes into it so that aggression and and there was actually a woman that i was listening to um, a TED talk. Her name is Val Valencia uh, Peterson, and she was talking about Tyree Washington, who was a former NFL player. And one of the things that he said specifically when talking with her, because she has a, a a prevention program that she's doing with younger football players, so the ones that are in high school. Um, and one of the things that he says is, "My coach loved my anger because my anger is what made me good." And when I was good, you know, I'm highly valued. I'm getting the job done. But what they did not tell me was how to manage my anger off the field. So there's going to be people that are going to say, not to cut you off, but there's no, going to okay. be people that are going to say that this is a CTE thing, right? That that the the trauma, the head trauma is what's causing all these things. But let's, let's not, let's be fair to NFL players. Yeah. That the NBA has their share of, of domestic violence cases too. I'm I'm looking at a 2014 article that says the three years before that I'm counting one two three four five six seven eight nine cases pre 2014 for domestic assault in the NBA and that's pre 2014 and this is not domestic violence but John Morant just was accused of like brandishing a gun or something like that. And was just has just left that again, not domestic violence. Like it, it's not just the NFL, I, you know. So NHL, I, I'm just looking at something else with you know. There's a bunch of major league baseball players. One very specific, and I don't remember his name off offhand, is basically out of the league for his domestic violence incident. Uh, but, it it I, might I, even I be like, a sexual assault incident. I, I don't. I, I, so yeah, I, you know, we we're we're a little bit picking on the NFL because of the anger and stuff like that, but I think we need to be fair that it's not it's not just the NFL. And there's some people that will say that this is caused by brain injury. That that the violence and it, it is can a be exacerbated by injury. a TBI. It can be definitely exacerbated by the TBI, but what are we exacerbating? We're exacerbating something that was already slightly pre-existing, whether it was acknowledged or not for whatever reasons doesn't really matter, but it's there was something already pre-existing. When we talk about a TBI causing aggression, that's more than likely going to be, and, and you guys definitely can tell me the prefrontal cortex, it's going to be in the front of the brain where we were, where we're going to see a lot of emotional disturbances and changes. So bar that happening to such a degree, and usually when we see that, it's a dramatic change from who they were and how they function to something okay, now this is new and, and we don't know what to, to do with this, you know, but that's not necessarily what we're seeing. It was divided into three categories. There was the domestic violence, and then there was also um, a, other forms of aggression. So brandishing um, a firearm or something of 
like that nature. Um, and the other one that they were high in was, um, and this is sports in general, was um, sexual assault. Whether it culminated right. in an actual act, but just the harassment, the the enticement, you know, all of those things. So we are seeing that across the board. But then I still have to ask the question, why is it so high with sports? Because there was uh, a lot of studies that were done that were looking at NFL players, their mean age is like 25, 26. So they were looking at individuals, specifically men who were ranging from the ages of 19 to 25. So roughly in the same age range. And those that played sports had higher incidences of aggression than those who did not play sports or that wasn't their career. Okay. Well, one, one of the things that helped Zach Stacy in, in this particular case was, she said, was CBT. Yeah. Which is cognitive behavior therapy. So can you explain what CBT is and how it differs from some of the other therapies and how it might have helped him? Definitely. Um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is there, there are different modalities of, of therapy, um, theories of therapy. Cognitive behavioral is a more common approach um, because it deals specifically with cognition, meaning what you're thinking. So the flow of that is what you're thinking kind of flows into what you're doing. So if we're going to make any changes happen in your life, then we're going to have to first address the thoughts that you're having about a given situation. Therefore, the behavior itself will change. That's, that's wonderful. And, and I think, and not to go backwards, but I think that's important to, to point out that you tapped into something, you know, regarding the way um, athletes might have been, uh, you know, more prone to violence. And I think, you know, I like to say sports is a form of communication. And I think that a lot of these players, and again, I repeat it, we don't have to go and, you know, use that first excuse that it's a trauma, it's a, it's a, it's a head injury. But it might be also that a lot of these players have been dealing with different traumas in their life. And the only way they can channel that, that, that anger, that violence is through sports. And and sometimes I can assume, right? We don't know. I can assume that that anger can outflow, you know, out of the out of the boundaries of sports and and you know, interfering in our life and then lead to violences and at home. But um, I think in athletes and sports, I think what what would go to primarily for treatment, right, would be CBT. Right, we, as, as physician, we would be concerned of using any kind of medication because we we are keeping the the athletes the athletes in you know. In mind, their the livelihood, their the performance is also at risk if you go into medications, you know, with side effects, you know, weight gain, uh, movement disorders, or cardiometabolic issues, whatnot. So CBT and seems fatigue. to be and fatigue, and CBT seems to be the primary option. And and my input or what I've read online and, and my thinking is that athletes may be maybe you will tell me, Erica, might be the, the perfect client for CBT because they're so used to regimen, right? A, a rigid pattern or repetition or following structures or following orders or practice and repeating. So CBT, I think, uh, brings a, about a lot of, you know, work into it, right? It's not just listening to a therapist, but it's also you're actually putting in the work and you're actually learning new skills and practicing those skills. So I think at least uh, would be great client. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely correct in that a CBT, one of the, the hallmarks of CBT is that it was one of the first 
theories that actually gives homework assignments. So it's not just the 45 minutes to hour that you're sitting once a week with the therapist, but you're also taking work home that you're doing to practice restructuring your thoughts. Um, I mean, I'm an athlete. So when you said the structured, you're absolutely correct. When I was training for marathons, I was very rigid. My thoughts were very focused um, on how I was going to do, where I was going to uh, find the motivation, where I was going to, you know, I got to make that final mile. Where is this coming from? You know, what am I using that's within me? So very cognitively structured. Absolutely true. However, when we start sliding into trauma work, CBT is not indicated. It's strongly not indicated just because of the nature of trauma. So while he may have begun his journey with CBT and his girlfriend in the interviews that I saw, you know, she was saying she has seen changes. Um, And I think a lot of that is because CBT brings awareness to the individual of this is what you're thinking, what was happening, you know, and when you have this thought, this is what you did. Um, When you had this thought, you were feeling this, and then this occurred, because that's the actual trains, the train is thoughts, feelings, then behavior. Um, So she will see a person will see changes, they will see success. Most importantly, the aggressor has to be willing. And sometimes they're not willing to make the changes. I think she's so invested for, well, her reason was very clear is they do have a child together and they're going to have to co-parent. She has to co-parent with this person. And as we know, if he doesn't receive the help, one of the ways that they still exert control when you're not living together is through children, through children, through pets. So there, and that's why I said family members before, because they are extensions of that person. So I can still manipulate and control these other external factors that's going to make this person feel the way that they feel. So it was extremely important that he did receive help. Going further, um, and you did ask the question early about if these relationships can be rekindled, anything is possible. but how would take both individuals in therapy separately doing their own work because there was background with that. And then after that has occurred for a while, then they're going to have to go in for couples counseling because they're going to have to learn to create a relationship that looks and functions very different than what they had before. So there is a lot of work that's involved. But when it comes to dealing with the trauma that might be either uh, a fallout from the abuse or earlier traumas that, uh, I don't want to say really perpetuated, but definitely contributed to the abuse. Um, What's more indicated is uh, DBT type of skills training, which is dialectical behavior. Um, And that deals that is the same kind of flow as CBT, but it puts the emotional component first. And that's kind of like the primary because you're dealing with the emotions that were coming up. And then, because most people, honestly, we know what we feel. We have an idea of what we think. And we're usually clueless over our behaviors until we get in trouble by them. 
Dimitri, we're going to have to bring her back, man. I mean, this breath yeah, of knowledge. This, this I, I, no. The, we, the, this kind of stuff we could go on for another hour. But no, we, you it wouldn't be right. Athlete? You said you're an athlete? I'm a runner. Yes, I'm a runner. You did track and field? I did track and field from like junior high all the way to a year ago. <laughs> were you were you distance or, or sprint? Actually, that's the funny thing. I started out as a sprinter because okay. I have the build for it. And then uh, later on, my older adult years, I decided I wanted to challenge myself further and go into uh, marathon, so distance. So that was a different right. type of training. That's why I'm saying my, my whole thinking it's process had different. to change. Yeah. Um, uh, the training changed. It was, right. it's, it's to- it was your, running, your, but it was done. What's your sprint? Uh, what was your sprint event? Uh, I did the 100, of course, uh, the 220, uh-huh, course. and uh-huh. the 440 relay, oh, wow. first okay. or so last you, leg. So I was, I was the. Do you remember was, your time in the 100? Oh, God, that's a thousand years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine, mine was slow. They, they didn't even put my time up. They just put the five and like a upside down seven, and that's what the time it was just slow. Yeah, they didn't even put up my time. Then. They, uh, but we wanted to ask you, we were talking earlier, do you have a favorite band or group or uh, individual artists that, that I you favor? I have a favorite individual artist. Yes, I do. And when and, anybody and they, hears this, they're going to start screaming. Yes. Who is it? Prince. Die Hard Prince fan. Okay. Die so Hard. If Prince, Die Hard. If Prince did another concert down here, they did another concert, say, at Hard Rock Live or... I think, how much would you be willing to pay to sit 10, 11 rows back? Oh, that's that's a non-negotiable. I'm always going to be in the purple circle. I'm always going to be front and center. I don't care what the cost is. I have paid pretty okay, dollars so me, to go see him. The most that I paid was over $600 for one ticket. Okay, well, what is your limit? Let's say you get online and it's 700 800 there is no limit. There's no, li- there's no limit to. So you would pay ten thousand dollars to go see. If I had ten thousand dollars, yes, <laughs> I would. Okay, that's, that's a great would. answer. That's and a great answer. Okay, if- but I'm asking you, as you are right now, what is your limit for paying for a Prince concert? The limit is what I got in the bank account. Oh, okay. So that's I guess she's I'm, a die-hard I'm, a, friend. I'm the bad. There, fan. there is. I'm. I'm a diehard fan. That's. That's it. There is. Okay. There, there is no limit. I'm, I'm the bad he, he, I'll be fair though. He is the only one, and I've, I've always said that he's the only one that I would go top dollar for. That I don't think about how much it's going to cost. My goal is to get as close to him as humanly possible, and I, I'm okay. always in the purple circle. I'm always in the purple Fine. circle. So. Fine. I'm sorry, Axel. I'm a bad fan. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because Guns N' Roses is coming and they're charging $1,000 to sit yeah. close to them. And, and I said that they were abusing their fans and I wouldn't pay that much. So you know, I'm a bad fan. My no, everybody has flashed. their limits, you know. And everyone, but that's in, like the and one, everyone in Guns N' Roses. That's the one pleasure that I would just allow myself. You know, we have an indulgence. So I'm with you. I'm with you, Erica. It's indulgence. worth it. Okay. So Fine. if it's the last time Fine. ever, do it. Fine. And okay. I it, you, right. saying that I felt bad because I did not travel to Atlanta where he, unbeknownst of course, where he gave his last concert. So and I that will always be like the one regret of my life that how come I I could have driven I could have flown I could have been there. 
but okay. yeah. Well, thank you, Erica. Right. We're going to have to have you back. No, we, we will. Yeah. I mean, insight. there's so much we can get out of you and yeah, yeah. we can't do it right. in 30 minutes. It wouldn't be fair. <laughs> no, no, apparently not. Okay. Thank you, Erica. Thank Bye. you so much. Thank you, Erica. Time to wrap this up with the mental health tip of the day. Day full of hiccups? Need a shakeup? Listen up. It's Dr. Bick and Dr. DeGrasse mental health tip of the day. What do you got? Let's see. The mental health tip of the day brought to you by Nobody Still because we still do not have any sponsors. But if you want to sponsor the mental health tip of the day, get in touch with us. You know how to do that. The mental health tip of the day today is sit with your feelings. Feelings are not your fault. What you do with them and how you react to them and your behaviors after you get them, that is your responsibility. And feelings, intense feelings especially, can be like a South Florida or a, a summer thunderstorm. I use South Florida because that's where we are, but it could be like any, any summer thunderstorm. They come on really, really quickly. They're super intense. And then they disappear within two, three, four hours. And if you sit with them, feel them, understand them. These are my feelings. And understand that they will pass. You can learn to behave with your feelings in a more productive way. And you'll be able to understand them. Maybe find something to write about them. Write down your feelings and write down your thoughts while you're having them. That's a good one. You know, we just had um, Erica with us. We talked to CBT and there's one thing I want to bring back, you know, feelings, it is what, those are the things that bring about our emotion. Feelings lead to emotion, right? And one thing to that same length that you're going on, one thing I tell people, it might be corny, but it sticks. I tell people all the time, emotions, right? Emotion are always in motion. Right, emotion goes, it flows, it goes away, it comes back. It's it's Very it's not nice. static. So the way you feel now and the the emotion you're getting from that feeling, it probably most likely almost never will be the same thing you feel and react to tomorrow or in a month or in a year. So understanding that your feelings lead to emotions and your emotions are not permanent, right? They are in motion. That's the mental health about today. Excellent. Thank you guys as usual for listening and we will see you again.